Hey, listeners. Happy February, and welcome to Season 6 of Silver on the Sage podcast. This month, each episode will focus on a different reason why we love Philmont and New Mexico. Today, we're going to share some historical love for the Double H, a satellite BSA high adventure base that ran from 2004 through 2009 in southwestern New Mexico. And bringing you this story is Tofe White. Tofe worked all six summers that the Double H was in operation, as well as numerous seasons at Philmont, seven of which he worked in the infirmary. In his youth, Tofe went on his first ever backpacking trip at Philmont Scout Ranch. As a seasonal staffer, he describes Philmont as a home with a huge backyard and family all throughout who will feed you and put you up. Reflecting on his 16 summers on staff, Tofe says with good humor that the show must go on. No matter how weird it gets, it's not stopping. At the Double H, where there were no designated trails, a staff of 60, and just one backcountry camp, the experiences were similar to Philmont, yet more austere and uniquely challenging. Tofe recalls the most unbelievable sunsets and lightning storms and a striking color of purple in the sky that he's never seen since. At Philmont Scout Ranch, if you find yourself in need of help, the state-licensed infirmary facilities and its staff will come to your aid. Tofe praises the infirmary for its capabilities of care and highly qualified staff in partnership with the University of Kansas Medical Center. Tofe's own medical career began with an interest in first aid in scouting, then teaching Philmont first aid, working on ski patrol at Angel Fire, earning his EMT certification, and the rest is history. His philosophy is to pay attention, see what interests you, and seek opportunities to practice. Today, Tofe is the assistant patrol director for the Canyons Village Park City Ski Patrol. Lastly, a quick housekeeping note. My apologies for the occasional audio disruption. Tove's mic was putting on a show of its own, which did make for some extra funny sound effects during some of his stories. And I'll wrap up this with a Georgia O'Keeffe quote that kept coming to mind as I edited this interview. Interest is the most important thing in life. Happiness goes like the wind. But what's interesting stays. Can I call you Toph? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Okay. Because that's what I know you as. Does anyone at Philmont know, call you Christopher? Uh, one. There's one person who calls me Chris. Who? Um, Andy Schmidt. Uh, and it's probably because uh, just in the time frame that I knew him, that was just before that nickname started sticking. And uh, so he's probably the only person. And then occasionally I'll have random people call me that for the first week because uh, the way that I joke about it is that it's the government and my mother that are the only people that use that, uh, that use my legal name. So, <laughs> but I did get that at Philmont that came from just buddies and friends. Yeah, that's what, that's what I know you as. So we'll go with Toph. Um totally. 
I think it's your mic. I don't know if it's hitting. Let's see. Or just try not to move. I don't know. <laughs> you hearing that? Is it? No, it's better now. I think it was just okay. hitting hitting your collar, maybe. Okay. Cool. Okay. Okay. Cool. I'll just kick it off. So I'm here this evening with Toaf White, and a lot of people are excited to hear from you today. Um, to chat about your time at Philmont, a lot of people will know you from the Health Lodge or now the Infirmary, um, but you've also got a cool history working for the Double H. We can take it way back if you want and start in 1996 when you were a participant, or you could kick it off somewhere in the mix. Getting information ready for this and making me think about it, I was like, oh, wow, I've been involved with this place for such a long time and scouting just in general. I think there's really nothing, not, nothing too notable uh, for me being a participant, except for uh, Philmont was my first backpacking trip ever. Uh, so, of course, um, whenever we had participants where we're like, how have you not done any training or figured anything out? Because uh, our local council used to just round people up and go, hey, we're all going as a contingent. And we would we really didn't do any training hikes or anything beforehand. We got sorted out as we got there. So um, I was one of those participants that was probably at the cabin carrying too much stuff, uh, complaining about it, not having the, you know, the right air quotations, the right gear. Um, and that was a pretty big learning experience for me because when I got, I was, when you get done, I was like, wow, that was something really big and really challenging. I hated it. I don't think I'm ever going to go back. And when I got home, everyone was like, wow, you've been to Philmont. And so that was really cool when I was like, actually, this is starting for me to get to do hard things. It was like, oh, we're doing a weekend camping trip was no longer a big deal because we've been out for 12 days with strangers who then became friends. Yeah. And then that was what really helped me come back as an advisor when I was uh, 18. Uh, they just needed an 18-year-old to go. I was like, this is great. I don't, I don't have a ton of responsibility. I don't have any kids in this crew. I just get to hang out and then like learning about advisors coffee and some of the advisor coffee's activities. I was like, man, this is sweet. Um, <laughs> and then when I was in college, uh, it was, hey, would you like to go and work at Philmont? And I was super stoked, filled out my application. It was probably the finest handwriting I've ever done to make sure that like, because that's what you got graded on. It wasn't a digital form then, you know. You got to mail it in way ahead of time. I was slightly disappointed I didn't get Ranger right off the bat, but uh, I had a great time in activities, spent a year in base camp. And the, the activities department was a little bit different back then with the responsibilities I had. And then just from there, just more and more experiences. And uh, it's kind of like, just pay attention. Um, sometimes cool doors open and you go somewhere that, or you take a new job or you have a new experience or follow up on something. But yeah, I credit Philmont to pretty much everything because I always wanted to do the, this is the track. This is what you should be doing to grow up and go to school, get out of college and go do stuff. But it was really like, I don't want to miss out on the other opportunities. So I'm going to do this thing because I can do it now and I might miss it later. And then I've accidentally stumbled into a bunch of great experiences and met my best friends, met my now fiance, uh, wound up in Park City, wound up on a ski patrol. Uh, it's just been really, really cool. Where are you from originally? I was actually an Air Force brat. Um, so I was born overseas and then we'd move around every three or four years. We were, I was born in Germany and then we lived in um, New Mexico. We were actually at Kirtland Air Force Base in Albuquerque for a while. So like I had already known about Zia's and learning Spanish and uh, green chili. Like I was order, already ordering stuff Christmas and then just, you know, not have, having a little kid's mouth that was getting burned all the time on this stuff. And then we moved overseas, stationed in the Philippines and Japan. And then uh, we got stationed in... North Carolina, which is where my dad's from. So I went to high school and college there. I really only have a couple friends from college that are still there, but uh, I, I don't, I didn't really grow up with like, like I, I don't have any like childhood friends. 
which is probably why Philmont was so formative. I was like, finally had like a stable college community. I was going back to the same jobs over and over. Philmont felt a little bit like that too. You had people from all over with different experiences, but all had a similar mindset, similar goal. Um, so not being in the military, but like having grown up around that culture, I think informed a lot of how, how I felt about things. So in 2001, you did come back as a ranger. Was it everything you hoped it would be? I'd say, yeah, because you and part of it's like it's as cool as you want to make it. But just like anything, there's a ton of great people and you get to meet awesome folks. And I wound up hanging out with people that I had similar interests with. You know, we were doing a lot of the go out on a trek, you come back, take out another one, get a day off. Really, as a mountain trek ranger is where I really liked it because you would spend five days in the backcountry doing program. You got farther into the backcountry than a regular ranger trek did. You would get back on a Saturday and then PTC groups would show up on Sunday. So it was literally as soon as they got dropped off and their parents picked them up, you had until the next morning meeting. And it was literally, what can you fit into this? And so it was, you'd wave at the kids and they'd go, okay. And then it would be maybe sprint to the shower house or just jump into a vehicle and go somewhere. It was, can we make <laughs> it to, can we make it to here and do something and get back or and you do that maybe two cycles and then you're like, okay, I need a break. I need to shower and see if I can hitch a ride to Taos and go get groceries at Walmart. Or like, I just need to eat as much as I can in the dining hall because like you can only tolerate five days of trail food, you know, and if you can't get off site, then you got to do something else. But yeah, we had a, like a group of mountain trek rangers. We got off one time, jumped in the car, drove over to Red River, grabbed our packs. I think we grabbed a couple trail meals before we left and we decided that we were going to sleep on a wheeler. And so we were leaving at like two in the afternoon. There's a forest service ranger. They're like, well, you guys know how long this will take? And you guys know where you're going? We're like, yeah, 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 yeah. And I know that this guy was like, these guys are going to get hurt out there. Something's not going to, like, we're going to be going to get these guys off the hill later. And we wound up hiking up. Uh, we're trying to sleep on Wheeler right next to the the, the mailbox and the, uh, the little marker up there. It's just awful cold. We're trying to put up a tent, which is dumb anyway up there. And like <laughs> wind is trying to rip everything away from us. So we, we wrap, like three of us cuddle together in our sleeping bags and wrap ourselves in the tarp tarp is just beating us in the face all night. And I remember my buddy, Mike, at that point, we, we look up and we see this one dot start to hit the horizon. And then we just see like a red line go across and we go, okay, that's sunrise. Let's go. And just throw everything in packs and we're running down <laughs> because now we know that we have to be at the meeting back in, uh, at some, you know, back at, back at the ranch. And so we stop at, it's like the old miner, crazy miner. There's this old breakfast place that was there in Red River. So we like order these pancakes that are so big, they give them to you in a pizza box. And then we're driving back, trying to eat while we're going over Bobcat Pass and trying to like make it back through the canyon. And we literally like drove into Tent City and got out. And we're like, okay, none of us slept. We're all dirty and tired. There's no way they're going to put all of us together. And they're going down the list and they go, okay, uh, Tof and Sonso, you're paired up. Mike and Sonso, you're paired up. But it was all four of us. We're like, oh, no. <laughs> and we were just taking turns like, okay, so I was going to go do this for a little bit. And I'd like go sleep behind the services for half an hour. And then they'd, you know, come pick me up and I'd take them over to go do Shakedown. And, um, but it was just those kind of things where it was like, we don't know when we'll be back. We might all wind up getting real jobs and this might be our only shot. So like it was, it was the youth and energy and entertainment that we, that you slowly run out of as you get older. But it was like, it was what it, we call it FOMO now, but it was get after it. Cause you don't know if you're going to get it again. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's a lot of those things that at Philmont I remember too. Like anything was possible. It was like, mm-hmm. do, you want, do you want to drive up to Miners Park tonight and sleep on the roof? Yeah, you know, like anything just was a yes because why not? And and the, just that youthful like carefreeness. It's so cool to be able to experience that at a place like Philmont where the opportunity is. It's not just like you know, let's go to the local wherever in the small town. It's like you have this entire ranch. And the neighboring towns, and it's kind of just like this pinnacle of youth. And partly because everybody is there, and it's such a huge family, you cannot know anybody. And yeah, it would be like, oh, there's a car going out this way. They'll drop us off at Maxwell. Let's hike up here. We can camp at Miranda or like run up to Baldy and try and see this, and then we'll come back down over here. Or yeah, you'd leave a crew in the backcountry, and it was your time to get back into base. And it was, do you want to hike and do this long, weird route? Do you just want to sit in a meadow until the sun goes down and come in? Well, and you, but you could go somewhere and know that, like, you probably get a porch and a meal um, as long as you're willing to do dishes and chores. And it wasn't like, oh, I've got to put this whole thing together and plan three days out. It was, I don't know, what, what do you want to do? Um, it's a huge, huge backyard. <laughs> yeah, it's a thing of beauty for sure. So you were a ranger in 2001, mountain trek ranger 2002. Uh, you took a couple summers off and you came back in 2004 uh, as a participant again doing fill break. So what did fill break look like back then? Because it's it's definitely morphed now, I believe. It was sort of weird because I, I didn't realize that it had disappeared <laughs> until it came back. I think it came back after the, the most recent fire. But uh, from what I recall, it was, you know, three different weeks that were kind of lined up for college spring break times. I remember flying into Albuquerque and a van picked several of us up. We drove up and then uh, we were helping build part of the Uraka Trail. So we were sleeping on foamies in the um, over at the PTC in one of the conference. I think it was in the Maxwell room, actually. And then uh, we'd get up in the morning, dining hall meal, load up, meet a couple of our uh, cons folks that were there. And we did, we were just pioneering trail. So that was the part where it's like, you see those stakes through the, the choya and the, and the scrub oak there, just destroy everything from one stake to the next. And the next crew is going to help level it out and put the tread in. And uh, so it was like super hard work all day. And then um, because everybody's college age, it was, you know, if you wanted to go into town in the James or if you wanted to hang out um, and it was kind of nice. Cause I think we had like a half day where they're like, yeah, we're not going to build trail today. You guys can go to Cimarron or go to Taos or whatever. So you were a participant at Philmont. You worked in activities. You're the rain. You did the ranger gig. You did fill break. Throughout all of this, who were some folks that really mentored you or grew you or inspired you? Kind of during your seasonal time before you kind of settled in uh, the, the infirmary there at Philmont, or did those people not oh, come come till later, like in the infirmary? I think most of them came a little bit later, but uh, I think we were still calling them TRs, the training ranger that I had. Yeah. RTs now, whatever it yeah. was, it was the other way. It was a big thing when they changed <laughs> letters. Um, Brian McCormick, who is my TR, like I, I, I was, I never got to see in ranger leadership how they talk about like how you actually teach how to be a ranger. Um, a lot of it just does come through experience and how you interact with folks. But he really did a good job of uh, like making you. Like I remember ranger training feeling like I was actually learning how I wanted to share how cool everything was and helping me realize why I was so excited to be there as a staff member and how important that was because not for me, but for what, how many people I could be affecting. 
So it's not, it could make you feel a little bit heady if you don't stay grounded. And he did a very good job of that. Like, remember, yeah. it's, you got to stay humble because this is a hard job. It is always going to be the participants first. Um, when it's raining, you you splash in puddles. Your your rain jacket goes on the kid that has one that doesn't work really well. Um, you eat last. Uh, you you get the burnt parts. Uh, you help do dishes every you know the first couple nights. Um, and just little things like you know when you're getting ready to leave your crew, just take their trash from them first. Um, you know like hey, I'm going back to base to eat a meal. You guys are getting ready to start a big adventure, and you're going to eat some more boil in a bag stuff or boil you know you're going to have to make your meals. Let, let me help you out. Let me take some stuff with you. So he did a really good job. And I think that that really instilled quite a few things that I'd been probably getting from some other places too. Yeah. Um, and then the other one that I didn't realize until later, but that was probably around the time frame that Mark Anderson was moving in as well. And then that was also interesting because, you know, with him being like, I think the longest standing program director, I don't know if I was paying attention and I was in that circle yet where, sort of seeing him grow as how somebody who who can he's just impressive i have no idea where he gets his energy the bandwidth for the things that he can keep track of uh, the the amount of detail that he sees the amount of tolerance that he can have for things knowing that like change and education take a while um but he just he was very impressive in like sometimes how it's uh he's one of the only people that I've known where I was like, wow, if you just have enough enthusiasm, like you can move anything, but it takes, you have to be able to, usually you have to be able to motivate a lot of people to be able to do that. And, but I like, I've just seen him have that amount of like force and energy all by himself. I don't know how he does that. I remember just like him carrying around those big binders all the time mm -hmm. uh, with all his information right there. And he could flip to any page and, and have the answer. And I just, I, yeah, lots lots of uh, mental note taking from the way Mark did things. Uh, and I I know that uh, and like you can decide if this is something that is appropriate or not. Uh, there was it was me, Nate Lay, Chris Sawyer, and Mark Anderson were all at a state search and rescue conference because um, I used to go uh, with that as part of the Phil Sar team and part of the infirmary. And I think after like day three, um, we're we're all packing up and getting ready to go, and Mark couldn't find a notebook there was a notebook that he had lost. And so Nate and I come downstairs because we were sharing a room and Chris Sawyer goes, Oh, oh you guys got to be ready. Like um, we, we might be here for a little bit. And we're like, wow, what's going on? He goes, we, we can't find a notebook. And I was like, all right, we'll get a new one. He goes, no, no, no. And we're like, Oh, it's his Mark's book of president secrets. Like, yeah, we're going on a national treasure type adventure here. Da <laughs> Vinci code thing. I, it resolved peacefully. I can't remember how that resolved, but it was okay. I think we either, found the information or he found the notebook, but like I've personally seen what happens when like part of your, part of the paperback bound brain that we all keep disappears. You know, yeah. we, we've all seen what happens when we lose our phone now, but around that time frame, we were all moving. Every, almost everybody had a smartphone, but Mark still has everything on paper in case something happens. So. And then in 2004, for the summer, you came back, but this time you went and worked at Double H, which a lot of people on the podcast will have no idea what I'm talking about. A lot of people will be like, yes, we're finally talking about Double H. So if you would do the honors, I'd love to hear from your perspective, because you worked at Double H then for four, five, six years, the mm -hmm. whole time. So that was the whole time it was, uh, it was, because it, it lasted from 2004 to 2009. So 
if you'd like to enlighten listeners on what Double H was, we'd love to hear that history and kind of your your stories, uh, the the different positions you worked there and such. Yeah, so the the Double H High Adventure Base was um, we like to think of it as a satellite adventure camp, satellite you know adventure base that was still associated and affiliated through Philmont. There's a gentleman who had made a lot of money through um, his family business dealings. The two companies is where the the two H's come from. Um, okay. But uh, he basically owned this ranch that was in southwestern New Mexico. And when he died of cancer, he wanted part of it. He donated to the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation as part of an elk uh, sort of preservation, conservation, and, and hunting education and good stewardship program. Um, and part of it was that they wanted to do youth education there. And the ranch manager was actually... I want to say he worked for Vermejo or was from Cimarron, but he had a, he had a Cimarron and Philmont connection. And as far as I understand, he actually contacted, if it wasn't Keith Galloway, it was Mark Anderson and said, Hey, we'd like to do something here. That's a little bit more than, you know, just doing a, a couple things through the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation and, you know, kind of like field day or hunter education type things. We actually want to run a program here. And so I think it was probably the year before they sent some folks down um, I think most of them were from conservation because uh, I do know that John Sully and Andy Schmidt talk an awful lot about like driving around and scoping the area out and seeing what might be possible. And so the idea was that we would have a, a base camp that was established off of a, um, a ranch house that was there and that we would actually go out into the backcountry and take crews out. Um, there would be a guide. We call them guides, uh, wilderness guides. We would have a wilderness guide with each participant group. Uh, with each crew and they would um, start on one end of the ranch. You can kind of think of it as like an upside down horseshoe. Our base camp was actually pretty much in a flat desert part. And we drove out probably 20 miles to two different trailheads and people would hike from one end up over the horseshoe in the middle was the one staff camp, which was a very old um, cattle ranch. I I loosely called uh, it. It was a loosely, loosely New Mexican cattle ranch at one point which was the one backcountry camp. And then they would hike the additional three days out to the other pickup. And so we would drop two crews off at each base and they would both meet in the middle and then come out. So a heavy crew load for us was the couple or the last two years when we were up to putting six crews into the backcountry a day. However, our entire staff was 60 folks. So that included the backcountry staff, all the guys that were on the trails, you know, like you put one out and they're gone for seven days. And so you have to keep doing that. Did you um, say 16? Six, zero. Six, zero staff. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then we were also running base camp. So guides were running. Um, we would do check-in, shakedown. We would actually cook them lunch and then we would drive them out. And in the meantime, we were doing any replacements for Martin camp where we were driving supplies out. And then we were helping check crews back in we did the same thing. We would take pictures. We'd rush back into basically a construction trailer, like an office trailer, um, and print out crew pictures and get their whammy plaques and get their patches. We had one shower house trailer that we would try and cycle everybody through. It was, I mean, it was, I imagine it's what Philmont was when it got started. It was like, I don't know, let's put some stuff in here and see how it works. <laughs> yeah. Um, you guys will figure it out. It'll be fine. So, and there were so, no trails. Is that how I understand it? It was kind of like a, a rugged. Yeah. yeah, it was just go. And so there were a couple ranch roads and people very quickly realized that they didn't go to the the, the camps 
um, were really just designated areas where um, it was a, a windmill with a water holding tank. And the and so you would just go and filter your water pretty much out of a cattle tank. And the, it, yeah, that's the face you should make. Because uh, <laughs> when I was on my training trek where we were like actually going to these places and figuring out like, okay, where could be trouble spots or what are we doing? We were doing that on our training trek the first year that I was there as a guide, as a senior guide, which was a ranger trainer, basically. Okay. We had, we had to have the same mentality, but just a little bit different language. So we were all special. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, and I, and I hadn't been there before and I have five folks that I'm supposed to be in charge of. And I was like, okay, I think this is our water site. And I'm looking around like, okay, this is where we're getting water. Um, How did you decide to, to go from Philmont to Double H? I, the, the reason I took 2003 off is I was in a relationship and we were going to try and make it work. And uh, part of it was, it wasn't going to. And uh, <laughs> um, I had gone out on fill break and they were actively recruiting. And okay. so Ryan King, who had just been put in the associate director of program role, which they had just shifted that so that he was running the double H. So that was recruiting during the spring, getting people there, running it during the summer and then regrouping during the fall. But he was also running the fall and autumn adventure programs. Wow. Um, and so that there was a, a new associate director of program that was there for that for, to sort of encapsulate those three roles um, and uh, and fill break a little bit as well. So he was heavily recruiting and he's like, Hey, I, you know, do you want to do this? And I was like, well, tell me about it. And like, well, we're going to open this brand new place. And I was like, all right, well, I don't know if this thing at home is going to work out. I'll go out for one more summer. And uh, <laughs> I'm going to go try it. And I'll say that I worked at this new place and I helped get it running and I'll do it for a year and then I'll move on with my life. Actually that that's the timeline on that is I went to the double H for that first summer. And then the, um, I wound up working the autumn after that and then went over to angel fire and then just stayed in the area and kept cycling around. So it was double H autumn adventure, ski patrol, double H autumn adventure, ski patrol. Yeah. Um, until some other weirdo buddies that I worked with, uh, Dave Copsa, Kevin Stickelman and Nate lay all talked about how, and Steve parks had all talked about, Oh, and Kristen Picarilla had all said, Hey, we have been working as ski instructors up in park city you should really uh, think about going up there. Uh, the town's a little bit bigger. The snow's better. The mountains are bigger than, than down there in New Mexico. And so me and a, a, another great friend of mine, Eric Jimlink, um, you can tell I'm trying to do as much name dropping as possible. <laughs> uh, we headed up and we actually stayed with Kristen Picarillo and became her roommate roommates. And that's when we started doing I did the same cycle. It was Philmont, Ski Patrol, Philmont, Ski Patrol. Yeah. But it was just having to travel from Utah instead. Yeah, And so it was the same thing that I was kind of mentioning. It was friends who gave an opportunity and a couch or a floor to sleep on Said, Hey, let me get you in the door. Um, but also you should just come try this out. Try it out. Try it out for a summer. Try it out for a winter. And <laughs> is if you keep your eyes open and go, Hey, let me, let me just keep trying this until like, it's actually not possible anymore. Or I haven't overstayed my welcome. It's like the best kind of peer pressure, right? Yeah. Just come try it. Uh, so I, I completely derailed part of this, but that's uh, okay. So for the double H, uh, we yeah. were down there in Southern New Mexico, outside of a small town called Magdalena. So it wasn't our property. Um, and so we were borrowing facilities and we would move in. And our base camp was basically uh, an old ranch house where we put Philmont tents up out back. We moved a bunch of platforms down, moved in bunks, moved in lockers. And then we had an office trailer. And then we had two Connex boxes that we used. One was services and one side of it was all pre-packed meals. And the other side was all gear. 
the rest of it was crew storage where they would, if they couldn't lock stuff in their vehicles, we would say, okay, here you go. Here's your, here's your locker. And we put their stuff in the bin and hide it in the back. Um, and we'd man that throughout the day. Uh, seven day tracks, Martin camp did inline black powder rifle shooting. So, um, it wasn't in turp. Everybody was wearing blues at the time. And, uh, you, uh, we taught them all how to do inline black powder shooting. So pretty much muzzle loading, but just with, uh, sabos and, uh, so a bullet on top of these powder blocks. We have, uh, they did a chuck wagon dinner there, um, where it was beef stew and then they would do a cantina show. And I don't, I think we sort of had talked about, we should do some evening entertainment, but people just put together whatever there was. We didn't really ever have the, the staff pool to be like, oh, we have these great musicians. Let's put them together and create like a flowing program. The other one is that the double H season ended a little bit earlier than Philmont's. And so we had some folks that would leave straight from there, but typically Philmont with folks leaving, um, you, would, you know, you get that like hard trickle at the end of the year. And all of a sudden you're, you're trying to balance program with just keeping the plays running in the backcountry. that we would drive back up, unpack everything, put everything where it needed to be. And then we would um, get reassigned into the backcountry. So um, that's how Nate Lay and I wound up at Zastro. That's how I wound up at Miner's Camp. And they're like, all right, well, let's put you through training. We'll make it rock shock. Like, oh, okay, this is sweet. So I did that for two weeks and then helped gather a camp. I The first time I met Nate was towards the end of the summer in 2007, which was my first summer. And we were at Bobian and Nate, but he, yeah, he helped us gather or he, he disappeared in a vehicle and he introduced himself as Cheddar. So that's how I got to know him. But I remember being like, I haven't seen you all year. Like, where'd you come from? And everyone was like, ah, oh, Cheddar. And so uh, I have a vivid memory of it for some reason, because he hadn't been around other, you know, otherwise is a new face at the end of a season. I mean, that I got sense. that too. They'd be yeah. like, oh, yeah, that, that's tough. And they're like, who is he? And they're like, I don't know. He shows up at the beginning of the season. He talks about <laughs> the double H. He sits in the camp director meeting. And then he disappears. Yeah. And then he shows up around the time for gather. And then I think he's been here for an autumn or two, but like, yeah, yeah he's worked here eight years and no one knows him. <laughs> Elusive. Okay. So, so double H is this satellite program, you know, through Philmont. Uh, these crews are doing like is bushwhacking. Like, uh, like, I feel like that's degrading it. They're like mapping compass and. Yeah. Op- open land navigation GPS was the thing. nice way. That we okay, said, oh okay. yeah. We did. We actually did give them GPS and try and teach them how to do that um, without having maps loaded into them, which is a little weird, but yeah, we were trying to do a lot of open land nav. Um, we tried to kind of build an astronomy program, but it's kind of tough when no one's a good astronomer. Um, and you're like, I'm going to read you out of this book. And it's like the same book that you could be reading out of, you know, it's kind of the equivalent <laughs> of the, you know, PowerPoint karaoke at that. Like you could, you could read this stuff just as easily. Yeah. Um, we did have some folks that were really good at it, but uh, yeah. and then, um, we added a little bit of uh, search and rescue and wilderness first aid training at Martin camp as well. But yeah, most of it was the guide was entertainment for entertainment and education and safety for seven days. So any stories or what did you love about it? I mean, you stuck around for six Ooh. years. Um, it was a much, it was a smaller crew. We had to work, not smaller, like we had 60 people. So we got to work with everybody in different rotations. It was more austere. There was a, the Western half of the ranch looked an awful lot like Philmont where it was, or the, the Northern part of Philmont where it's like big ponderosas and um, Mark Anderson just talked how much he loved that there were so many alligator juniper down there um, <laughs> and still mountains. Um, but as you move towards the East side of the ranch, it turned more towards like what the Southern end of Philmont looks like. Uh, when Olympia camp went in, folks were like, why would you camp down here? And I was like, yeah, this is, I'm going to be good at camping here. I know, I've done this before. 
so that side was like hot and very austere. Um, and it was just a, a little more, we, we talked about how it maybe felt a little more rugged and a little more challenging um, because we really couldn't do like a shortened track. It was hard for us to adjust itineraries. You're out there with the crew for seven days. There were no shower options until you got back. If you weren't hiking near a road, if we had to go help or go do something, it was like a hike or a, a crutch out or a carry. Um, really hot. <laughs> so it was a little more austere. And I think it just made all of us flex a little harder. And we were working with, you know, we were, we were on somebody else's property with their infrastructure. And so there were times where we were like, what is going on? We had one morning where we got a call. I can't remember how the exact radio call went, but it was something about Martin Camp doesn't have any water. And so we were like, oh, that's really not good. And they're like, yeah, their well went out. They've got like 60 kids that are going to, you know, participants that are going to be like rotating through that camp to, during the day. And they just don't have water. And like, how are you going to make your meals? How are you going to do anything? So we had, I think at one point, well, we had one water buffalo. And so we go to our out front and we're trying to fill ours so that we can drive it up there. And we're like, well, that's going to take like two hours to fill and then an hour and a half to drive up. And then we're going to have to come back. And how many runs of this are we going to do? And how much water do they need? And I think we were trying to fill, we went out to go fill ours up and we realized that our pump in our base camp had gone out. And we're like, oh. So now nobody has any water and we've got crews that we're picking up off the trail that are expecting water and a shower before they get on a flight. We heard like five people when they go, yeah, Martin's out of water. You hear five people in this ranch house, get up and immediately start getting dressed. And nobody says anything. We just walk out and we're like, okay, we got to build a plan. What are we doing? And everybody jumps in and starts taking off. It's like, okay, you're going to go pick these crews up and you get them back. And then we're going to call this uh, ranch down the road and see if like they can help us out. And then we're going to call the headquarters and see if they can send somebody up send their water guy up to go fix this. And then we're going to do this. And I think at one point I was driving out to go pick up crews, trying to figure out how I was going to tell them, Hey, you might not have showers. You might need to like get a hotel room and cycle all of your kids through and get a shower before you get on the plane. And I'm driving out and we passed the ranch house, which was a different system. And it was probably like 10 miles away from our base camp to the ranch house, which is then near one of the trailheads. And I drive by and Nate is sitting on a stone wall out front of this big, nice ranch house, reading a book with a hose in the water buffalo, slowly filling it. And I was so mad because I'm like freaking out and trying to figure out how I'm going to balance this. And I look over and Nate is doing what he needed to do and all he could do, which was just wait for the water to fill. And he's like, just reading a book out in the sun. And I'm like, Ugh, and he's just waving and smiling. And then I think we, we took that water and we filled a different tank that we had that we got that pump running and then the water came back on at martin camp but we didn't know that until we were getting done with our problem and we were armoring up to go take care of their deal but i just remember like it was always like we were half a step ahead of where we needed to be and it took a lot of creative thinking and like well this is going to be uncomfortable but we're going to make it happen and so it was like very weird when I'd come back to Philmont and like you have a problem and you call logistics or the backcountry warehouse or the infirmary. And there is a department and a team of people that will get out there too sweet and make it happen. So it did, it did teach you a lot of like, okay, we got to MacGyver this or we got to figure it out. So that was, that was always challenging and fun, um, super stressful, but uh, <laughs> you know, like we all get through that and it, there's probably like 15 more stories of just like, remember how silly that got at one point. And we were like, yeah, we should just pack this up and call it good. And we're like, well, no, we have crews coming tomorrow. We got to get this squared away. And we're like, all right. 
<laughs> we do joke around a little bit. Mate and I do the, like the show must go on. Um, sometimes no matter how weird it gets, we're like, well, it's not stopping until August. So <laughs> Um, yeah. like it takes an, it take, and we know this now, like it takes a real big deal for the ranch to stop. Yeah. Yeah. The, one of the other ones that we talked about was the, the, there were the most unbelievable sunsets and lightning storms there because where we were was in the middle of a geographical feature called the plains of St. Augustine. Um, we used to joke that you, and that's fairly true. You could look off to either side and you could see the curve of the earth like you could see the tops of mountains and not the bottom just because it was so flat so where this mountain range was that made that u-shape it was plains in the middle both east and west and so when storms rolled in you could just see giant giant new mexico lightning just lighting everything up and slamming into the ground and it was weird because we would all go outside and we would all stand right on this barbed wire fence and just watch lightning way, way off in the distance. We're like, yeah, this is not safe. And we're like, we're like 15 miles away. We're probably fine. But <laughs> huge lightning that would just like roll across. And some of it was far enough away where you could see light and you wouldn't hear thunder for minutes. It was really, really cool. And then we talk about the, the, the 15 minutes of perfect because in the morning it's slightly chilly. The wind picks up and then the sand's blowing everywhere. It's really hot. And then usually every day in the afternoon, it would mellow out. The wind would stop. Crews would stop calling. Um, we never had crews that stayed in base camp. We always drove them out to the trailhead their first night. And so it's just staff. And there was this color of purple that I've never seen anywhere else. And we used to stop. And before we'd start prepping dinner for however many were in base or thinking about the plan for the next day, we'd go inside and grab all of the chairs, drag them all out and just sit out in the sand and just watch the sunset. Um, and we joked around that it was the 15 minutes of perfect. And we got that every day. It was quiet. It wasn't hot. It wasn't cold. There's was no wind. Amazing New Mexico colors, horizon forever. And then, okay, we need to start thinking about this. Or a radio call would come in for somebody sick and sick somewhere. And then, all right, let's let's start getting ready for it. But um, it was amazing. That was probably one of the times where, sort of before we started thinking about it a lot, was like take that moment to center yourself and just be in the in the moment right then um, no one told us to do it it wasn't like a mental health practice it was hey we should stop and look at this and uh yeah just sit there and watch the 15 minutes of perfect and just feel it it was it's yeah i'm getting a little bit of goose comes on it because it was just uh something that i know I'll, i it will be very very rare if i ever get again and i'm super happy that we all took the time to do that and it turned into an evening thing of you might not get this again sit here and, and pay attention to this yeah spiritual i like it i'm i wish i could have seen it but at the same time <laughs> i'll live vicariously uh um why did the facility um only last those six years was it a contracted thing or just didn't sustain i think it was contracted for three to four years originally and then there was a there was hey we'd like to do an extension and um my understanding is that part of it was BSA, and I don't know whether that was like BSA or High Adventure, but there was a strong lobby for us to actually put in our own infrastructure and like take over a little bit more because we were, you know, our Martin camp, people were living out of a yurt. Uh, we were living out of a borrowed ranch house with tents out front. Everything was in Connex boxes. I mean, you, you know how Philmont Base Camp looks with nice, bright buildings, a great welcome center, wagons and signs and, and gates with boots on it. And ours did not look like that. So uh, we had folks that flew in and then drove two and a half hours from Albuquerque into the middle of nowhere. And then they show up and there's a, 
a bunch of scraggly 20 to 30 year old folks who just are slowly becoming dust colored. And they've got a bunch of construction trailers out front. They're like, you guys ready to go have fun in the mountains? And you can't see them very easily from where you're at. So um, anyway, with uh, without having any like really built up facilities and anything that we could support, there was a, a push for that. And uh, I think it was also a little bit of, I don't know this, but I think there might've been some financial struggles with the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. Like, hey, we can't put a lot of money into this. And you know, if you guys can't put money into it and we're not going to put money into it, if we can't have a contract, that's going to give us 10 to 15 years. Why are we going to build a building and then move out of it in two years? And so I think that it just got to the point where it was like, okay, this probably isn't going to work for any of us in the long term. It was a really good run. And then they added one more year onto it. So I think the original agreement was three to four years. There's a small extension. And then the last year was really like, we're done after this year. Like we knew it wasn't a surprise. Like when we got to the end of the year, it was, Hey, we're going to, this is it. We're putting the last stamp on it. Yeah. Um, So that was, yeah, I was the only staff member that had been there for all six years. Nate and I and Dave cops are cringe a little bit when we hear like, Oh, there's discussion of maybe Philmont doing something like that somewhere else. And we can, we can call these guys. They know how to do it. And we're like, Oh, that's so much work. I don't want to do that again. I'm out of the game. I'm not coming back. Yeah, it was a moment in time. And uh, I will say, I think those the patches that, that whoever designed are really beautiful. And no one can get those anymore either. So there's some cool mementos out there from from that. There are, yeah. There's there's a couple. Uh, it, and it was funny that, you know, I think part of it was thinking how long it was going to be out. And then just, you know, how to bulk ordering is, is cheaper. So uh, it always felt a little weird when, like, I remember collecting all the first year patches and every patch that, that, that came out after that. And uh, being like, oh, I need to hold on to this because, like, uh, I actually work there, and this is this is cool. And after the ranch, or after the double H closed, the trading post had a ton of that stuff, and they could not get rid of it. And so it was <laughs> like, you'd order anything, and I'm pretty sure that Shelly was back there just stuffing, like, using double H postcards as packing material, <laughs> or like, everybody gets 15 of these, and they're like, I don't need a picture of a windmill. That's cool. Those things have run out now, but for a while, we we're like, oh wow, there's a huge surplus of this. I actually haven't worn my film up buckle in quite a while, but my double H one is the one that, that gets worn all the time. So six years there, and then you continued on from 2010 to 2016. You spent seven years as the infirmary assistant chief of medical support um, at Philmont. Is your background in medicine? At some point it was. Uh, okay. I went to, um, I, neither, neither of my university degrees or have anything to do with medicine. And so that was when I graduated and said, I'm going to do one more summer at film. And uh, so I think I owe my parents a lot of money. Um, <laughs> uh, that's actually where I really found what I enjoyed. I'd always enjoyed doing first aid through scouting. Mm-hmm. And then what really drove it was when I, I'd really enjoyed teaching a lot of the, you know, like PFA and a couple other things as a wilderness guide uh, for the double H and as a ranger. And I had enjoyed a lot of that, but what really got me into it was when I spent my first year on ski patrol at angel fire. Cause I just was looking for a winter job and that seemed like it was going to work. And there were sort of two sections of ski patrol. And one was for the trail maintenance type stuff. You go and put up all of your ropes and signage and you help help with stuff, but you didn't respond to medical guests. And we worked a lot harder. The guys that all had their EMT um, got to hang out a little bit more. And I got I to sit in the shack and be ready. 
um, I can't just be out doing stuff. I'll, I'll hang out here. I was like, well, they get paid more and they hang out and they do less work and realize it's a trend in life. But uh, so it was, um, uh, I was like, okay, I'm going to go get my EMT because that's going to make my job a little bit better. And I really, and I did that through the Angel Fire Fire Department. Nate actually was like, hey, you should look at uh, maybe trying to sign up for this class. So during the autumn, I would drive over from uh, Cimarron twice a week um, in the evenings and go to class and then come back and be ready for cruise. And uh, I realized that I was studying harder for that class than I did anything for my undergrad. And it was, I realized because I cared about it and because I liked it and it was interesting. And I'd catch myself being like, oh, I want to learn more about that. Why does that happen? Or like, oh, how could I do that better? Um, hey, can I practice this? And so from there, uh, I wound up, that was around the time frame that I was still working at Double H. So I was, I like, I like the claim that I was a backup health officer as well, but that might've been anybody. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I got to help out a lot with that because when we had to go do, um, you know, when we had to go do a, a patient pickup or a search and rescue down there at double H, it was really all hands involved. And so I was helping out and that's where I met Nate. Really the story between where I first encountered Nate and when I actually got to work with him is different, but that was at double H. Um, and so that's, that's kind of how that happened is he knew that I had got my EMT. I had been interested in, in helping and working with that and helping teach PFA. And we got to work together. And then when uh, he wound up taking over as the chief of support for the uh, infirmary, because they had just moved out of the new build or into the new building that year. And he was kind of taken over from Gavin Faulkner and really getting the program started. He was like, Hey, do you want to, do you want to come work now that the double H is closed? So I got the call. The double H was done. And then Nate called me probably a month later. and was like, Hey, when that's done next year, you want to come work for the infirmary? So yeah, with my EMT, that's kind of where that, that wound up kicking yeah. in. Yeah. Um, and that that's how I wound up on ski patrol. I wound up moving from the ski patrol that I was on to, up into Park City. And that's also where uh, I got involved with Cimarron EMS as well and was on the Philsar team. That's how I wound up getting my advanced EMT, which is a little bit more certification and training. But with that, that also opened doors for me to go work with. I've worked um, as an EMT in some of the clinics and hospitals around here as well, um, which when our ski resorts shut down for COVID, I still had a very, very full-time job when I was either picking up shifts at the clinic or being in a COVID swab site. So yeah, um, uh, like I found something that just, just by keeping my eyes open, paying attention, I was like, Ooh, this seems interesting. Let me try it out. And I found the thing that I really, really care about and really like and find interesting it was not something that I, I really ever thought that I was going to get into. My degree has not, my degrees have nothing to do with it, but I, through good friends and like paying attention and getting good experiences. I was like, that's what I want to do. And I've found a great career out of it. So today your ski patrol is still there at Park City full time. I am. I'm the assistant manager for the Canyons Village out of the Park City Ski Patrol. Our resort's so big, we're split into two base areas. So I'm the, technically the assistant patrol director out of one half of a giant ski resort. Awesome. The first time I remember spending, excuse me, the first time I remember spending a significant amount of time with you, Toph, was when we did Woofer. And I remember really um feeling like super engaged with your technique of teaching because <laughs> sometimes it's it's intimidating for some people who who maybe it doesn't just come naturally or you know blood and guts and this and that and and the person's life and so there's you know the the physical and then the mental and so i do recall you just kind of had like this calmness about you like you could tell it was something that came innately and that you just enjoyed doing and teaching um People who are either in the medical field or EMTs or ski patrol, like always are kind of elusive to me. I just feel like I want, I because it feels like it could be a really heavy 
career as far as dealing with life and death and, you know, significant injury, but then at the same time, like really rewarding when you can be there for someone. So just kind of what's your take on being in that profession for so many years and maybe specifically kind of at Philmont? Yeah. Um, it's a good one. It, it can be challenging. It's, uh, I think it, it, I mean, honestly, uh, like the basis of a lot of it is biology and chemistry and we are all going and so biology is pretty much how life moves and we are all are moving through life and so it's all a, a lot of as you work in this field is um kind of similar to how those are you find something you're interested in or you go hey i'd like to do this job i want to try it out and then you'll hopefully be able to have some good and rewarding experiences and you know like anything in life that's why we move on and we stay interested in and want to keep doing it and then there's some things that are not pleasant some of it is not fair um, sometimes things happen to people and, and it shouldn't have, or it happens to not a great way to put it, but it happens to the wrong people. Um, bad things happen to good people all the time. And so you want to think, okay, I, I'd like to make things a little bit better for them. I might not be able to fix it. Um, we might not ever make it completely right. But that also lets us understand like, yeah, life is not fair. So we all need to try and keep it as fair as we can and and be nice and trying to help those that are having a harder time. And sometimes it, it, it's not without effect. Uh, sometimes there are bad things that happen and you, they're rough on you. You know, we've all had bad things that have helped influence us and whether that makes us better or it makes us sort of shy away from whatever it is. Cause there is a caring capacity for a lot of it. Um, people that are in the field for a long time or deal with a lot of really heavy stuff. There's, there's a lot of new stuff coming out with law enforcement, firefighters and EMS are seeing pretty similar, um, rates of mental health issues, PTSD, a lot of things look pretty similar to like soldiers in some ways. And so, it is a fine balance of making sure that you're balancing the reward and the wins with also how things are challenging. And it is fine. We have a lot of people who show up and not just an EMS is sometimes a little different than working in a clinic or working in a, in a specialty, but yeah, sometimes um, things do happen a little more suddenly and you sort of get called to go deal with something. It's not like, Oh, I'm going to make an appointment for my emergency today. Um, and I'd really like for, I can, I'd really only like to handle this much today. Yeah, sometimes it is a little challenging on you when it's like, okay, all of a sudden you, your adrenaline goes up, you need to rush into this um, or move at a measured pace. Um, and you do, you do just need to sort of grow from it. Uh, and there is a, there is a weird culture that um, everybody sort of falls into and personalities that you see develop uh, where we can, we can pick out the new folks and we can sort of understand how their, their progression is going to go. And, you know, it's like, you can see your, you can see your first year film on staff member. You can see your first year PC. You can see, I think part of where Nate got it was, he was a backcountry manager. And so, you know, he could roll into camp and kind of look around and be like, okay, I can sort of figure out what's happening here. And okay, I can see if this needs help or that doesn't. Um, you could show up and be freaking out about your staff members or your staff members could be melting down. You need to quietly listen and sort it all out. You know, you sort of move into that like parent progression where you need to be able to maintain calm and go, okay, this is important. This isn't. And also I understand I need to stay calm while you're all wound up um, and we'll fin- we'll figure it out. And, you know, sometimes the answer is going to be no. Sometimes it's, it's going to be a weird like you're not going to get what you want, but that's going to make you better. And we're yeah. going to help out. So I don't know if that's a little too philosophical, but no, you know, and some of it is like, we just recognize, yes, sometimes there's going to be a little bit of blood and ouch. Um, but that, that can be natural. And the first couple of times doesn't feel real great. And you look at it and go, Ooh, that, that's kind of gross. Um, and sometimes you see a little bit more of it and you go, okay, you're actually going to survive that. And I understand that you're screaming because you're scared, but me freaking out isn't going to help you. And I've, I've seen this a couple more times and you're, you're going to be okay. I was, no, that was really well put because I like a part of me always kind of like 
I don't know how to describe this without sound. Like I sort of like feel for the health lodge or the infirmary staff every summer. I like feel for them. I'm like, cause they just look, sometimes they just look so beat down or so tired. And of course it's like, it ebbs and flows, but sometimes I'm just like, man, those people are, there's just a lot going on. Um, and I'm just really grateful they're there, you know, and like people like Nate and you who spend so many summers there in, in the department, but I also know there's lots of rewards and traditions and you guys kind of have mm-hmm. your own culture there. Yeah. Like what specifically about the Philmont Infirmary would you want to share? What was that seven year run like? It is a very unique place to work. Uh, it is a licensed healthcare facility in the state of New Mexico. And that was one where um, when we moved into that new building and that's why Nate actually was like, no, we are going to start calling this the infirmary. Um, and I, we do, we all revert to the health lodge. But it's partly because we look at pictures of um, where that, what the health lodge used to be and the capability that it had. And, and we had folks that would do that. I'm sure that you probably experienced in the backcountry. Folks would call and go, okay, well, we're going to take you down to the health lodge. And they're like, okay, you guys are going to pick me up. You're going to drive me down this dirt road. And there's going to be like a Boy Scout in a dirty uniform with like pack of band-aids and a, a, you know, a jar full of cotton balls in a tent. And he's going to tell me that my, my foot hurts. And we walk them into that that building um, that is a licensed infirmary with inpatient beds with, you know, I think it's five, six exam rooms. It has a special, we have a special partnership with the University of Kansas Medical Center, where we have med students that are out there doing rotations, serving as both the, uh, the drivers or the, uh, um, the, both the drivers. And then the fourth years are coming out as actually helping treat patients. And we have the rotating physicians that come through. So they're coming through and there's physicians, doctors. Um, and then there's some stuff where we go, hey, we can't, we can't do this in the middle of, you know, northern New Mexico. We're going to need to send you to the hospital or we can draw your blood and we'll send it over to get tested and we'll see if we need to give you this medication or we need to do that. Or, um, hey, we're not sure this could be broken. We, we're going to send you for an x-ray. And we've had folks that thought it was going to be the, the scout in the tent and they show up and they go, wow, this is like a real deal. And so we were trying to get that like, hey, we're, we're pretty professional here. We're holding ourselves to a high standard. Like this is Philmont. And we want everybody, we don't want it to be that like front of house looks good. And then when you need help um, and, you know, you kind of have to get picked up and taken back to where it isn't, you know, where Mickey takes his head off, then um, we want you to be taken care of. And and we want you to know that this is a real facility and ready to go. And so, yeah, that, I mean, I, I talked a little bit about it, but we were able to do all kinds of stuff um, there in the clinic. And then part of the education that we did with our med students, we were actually able to take them out in the back country and do some pretty cool stuff. Um, hey, we think that based on this, here's what medication you're going to need. We're going to come out and do one or two things to figure it out. And we're going to treat you with this medication. We don't need to bring you off the trail and hold you for two days and try and reunite you with your crew and hold your crew up somewhere. We're going to come out and take care of you. We're going to come out and actually stitch you up and give you antibiotics so that you can keep your, keep moving on your track instead of, okay, you get to sit on a porch your crew gets the hike on. We're going to drive up there. If the roads are bad. You're going to hang out. Uh, you're going to miss part of your track. It's like, no, we can actually make a lot of this stuff happen. I think, was this year two or three? Or they have maybe the first, they have like a satellite um, sort of location or they did at, at one of the camps. Yeah. Uh, Nate was talking about that because that was something we had been discussing before. I wound up leaving. Not, it wasn't my idea, but it was, um, yeah, what yeah. if we were able to put folks in the backcountry and actually... Yeah up a little bit of level of care because you probably saw it as well. We would do PFA. Philmont 
first aid and train all staff members on, or at least all backcountry staff and then most other departments. Um, and we would put people out in the backcountry and you would see by the end of the season, kind of your high traffic camps would be like, okay, we saw this before. This is probably what the health budget is going to tell you, but let's call them down and, or let's call it down and then um, let's get you treated. But yeah, we were like, what if we were able to take even a little bit more resources and more um, education and medication out there and we were able to, to treat things and take some of the pressure off of the staff Yeah, and have faster response times for some of those things. So uh, I, yeah, I can't remember if this is the second or third year that they're doing it, but that was a cool idea we'd all been talking about. I really wanted to do it. So I'm kind of jealous now. Um, <laughs> One more. Yeah, I, I think if you get a chance to uh, uh, get, in, get in a chat with Nate about how that's going would be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Is there, are there any stories you could tell from, from your time there or is it all kind of, you know, HIPAA? What is, is that it? <laughs> yeah. So HIPAA, uh, the uh, <laughs> Health Insurance Portability and Protection Act. Uh, you don't need to know that. I just have to memorize that every response or something. Um, yeah. So I can't, I, I don't know that I'd talk a whole lot about um, specific patients. Um, to sure. be honest, we had a wide variety. Uh, we got to see quite a few things. Um, we got to see some things where like our med students that were working at the University of Kansas Medical Center in uh, Kansas City were like, I am glad I took this rotation because I'm going to be the only one that gets to tell this story in yeah. my med school. Uh, you know, we've had people where lightning hit pretty close to them and it was enough to, to rattle them uh, and sort of we wanted to check on and make sure the electrical system in them was working. Um, so we brought them down. Um, I was there when we had a young gentleman that was uh, grabbed by a bear at Zastro um, and helped treat him. Uh, he was doing really well, uh, but it looked really bad. Um, and then it turned out that it was medically, it was a fairly simple fix that they just did offsite. Um, but that was one where I was like, okay, I, I somehow have helped with a bear attack now. Uh, decent amount of like sort of broken bone type stuff. But yeah, we did help with Cimarron EMS as well. So sometimes we'd go respond to stuff off of the highway. Yeah, without like getting too much into it, I'd say that uh, really Philmont is unbelievably safe. You know, we tell people to get conditioned. We tell, you know, we have staff that is really, you know, they, they get a shakedown. People go and take a look at their gear. They're with their ranger. Uh, they're able to check in with camps. Camps are normally keeping an eye on folks as well. We do a really good job of trying to make sure that we're educating everybody on like good hand hygiene and health. So if you look at the amount of people that go through there and the amount of stuff that they encounter, it is really, really safe. But I remember as a 16-year-old participant feeling like I was in the woods and something was going to kill me all the time. <laughs> um, if it wasn't the weather, it was going to be something that I accidentally did. And even yeah. then, I, I don't think that people realize like the road networks and that we have radios everywhere. I really do remember like coming up a trail and coming around the corner and thinking, oh my goodness, there's a cabin out here. These folks must just live here all season and they just go wild and not knowing that I think I was a, it might've been like Hedadine or something where I was like, there's a road on the other side of this ridge. <laughs> like it, when it rains, it's hard to get here, but that's about it. Yeah. And not realizing like how closely knit everything is and people actually know what's going on or like you had trouble at the last camp. They're probably calling ahead to the next one and saying, Hey, just check in on this crew for Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's really safe, but there's, uh, there are some bad things that do happen. And it's, uh, it's challenging because it's real and we do want to make sure that like we're taking care of, you know, it's somebody else's kid, usually some, somebody else's kid somewhere far from home and our soft skills really come in. We try really hard to contact parents as soon as we can, let them know what's going on, keep everybody informed, keep the crew informed as best we can. 
anybody that helped out, whether it was the initial reporting camp or anybody that we sent on a hasty to go check on somebody, we want to make sure that everybody knows as much as we can, like, Hey, you guys are doing great. Here's what, what follows up. Um, it kind of bugs us every once in a while we would get a story like, Hey, I took care of this person and it must've gone really horribly. Cause like they never said anything about it and they just don't talk about stuff like that. And we're like, Oh no, we were just busy. Yeah. We would, we just wanted to know, here's how that went. Um, this guy actually turned out okay, but he did have to go home. But yeah, some stuff, some bad stuff does happen. Um, Nate and yeah. I were both there for, <laughs> Nate and I have been there long enough that we were there for the 2002 fire as staff members. Um, I happened to be down helping with training for the last big fire and helping get everybody moved around for a little bit. Um, I was there during the the flood. So we do, we do see some stuff every once in a while that, that's not real pleasant. Um, but part of our job we talked about is that sometimes your their expectations should be at like five and it's actually dropped down to like a two and we might not get them back up to a five, but our job was to try and really hard to get them as close to that as possible. Yeah. And that's why we worked really hard with the backcountry. Hey, can we, can we hold a crew? Can we intercept somebody? Um, you know, a couple of years in, we, we figured out this program where, Hey, this guy's at a, this kid's at a trail camp. That's where his crew's tonight. We, we could keep him in base for another day, but we're just missing out and he's going to get their crews hiking farther away. Can we see if a ranger can come over and we'll drop them off with a ranger and let them like two rangers and let them hike them into their camp tonight and bring, and then they can come out and they're like, yeah, that gets them back on the trail. We get two rangers that get to go hike with somebody and get out of base. Like, this is a great idea. And like, yeah, let's get people back out there. Yeah. Um, and knowing yeah. the stress is like, sometimes it's just more adventure than people need it. And so we get it. Like they're in over their head. The, the, the crews can't not going to stop. Can't stop. And we get it. Like you wake up and there's some poor sad kid just sitting on the porch and they go, yeah, they left me. Can you call this down? And we're like, all right, we'll go get them. Yep. That, that shouldn't have happened. Or, Hey, we really want this crew to not abandon somebody. We want to encourage them. Um, we want to, we want to get people reunited. We don't want to try and tax our backcountry staff by sending hasties all over the map. And that's where some of those goofy traditions came from. We were like, how do we say thank you? And that's where we started coming up with the awards at the end of the year. Like the golden, the golden suburban was who did the most pickups. Which, yeah. <laughs> uh, is just Gene Snell award. Uh, yeah. And then we, we just jokingly give it to somebody else every year. We do. We actually kept track of all of that stuff. Um, who, who did pickups, who went where, which camps did the most hasties, which was yeah. weird to see when like people were upset where they're like, I don't understand how French Henry didn't get it again. I'm like, Oh yeah. You know, I'm sorry. But like uh, Miranda beat you by two. I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> and it was like, man, we really want that. And it was just like, how do we say thank you for all the hard work that everybody's doing? Because you know, folks moved in to, to go do program. They didn't want to show up and have to go deal with somebody who's having a hard time on the side of the trail and being pulled away from that. And so how, how do we say thanks? Cause we're all in it together. It's pouring rain. It's getting dark. Um, we just got a call. Can you go check this out before we go out there and figure out what's going on? Yeah. And, yeah. It's a team effort, right? Takes a village. Yep. <laughs> um, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing some of that about the infirmary. It, the, the staff there does an incre- does incredible work every summer and in the off season. It's always fun to highlight you guys. One of the things about the infirmary that we would, it sometimes became challenging because we were always dealing with people that seemed to be having a hard time. Um, it was, you know, I'm hurt. I don't know if I'm going to go back out. I'm kind of sick. I'd like to make it back out, but I'm just not going to be well enough. You know, some of the hard ones were like, I really want to go out. What can you do? Can you drive me there? I'll crotch us. I'll get somebody to carry my pack. And you're like, we can't let you do that. If you fall again, you're going to get hurt or, or whatever. And then we'd have folks that were just over it. And they were like, nope, I'm not going. I'm, I've had enough. Um, 
oh yeah, I know that you said that this would work, but it's not. I want to go home. And so sometimes we got kind of kind of down. But one thing that I I would do is when I was getting really tired or frustrated, especially from like long days or long nights, long runs, I'd walk out and go over to the We All Made It gate out behind Tent City. So just like get that was one of our rules. Like you need to get out of the building and walk around. Um, that's why we tried never to eat in the infirmary. Like go get to go meals. No, we leave the building and we go talk to other normal humans. And so you'd, you'd take that nice long walk over there and I would stand there and see all these folks that were so excited to be finished, um, standing there taking pictures, fathers and sons, dads crying, you know, like helping granddad get through. Um, and I was like, I haven't seen one of these folks. Like we're dealing with a lot of, folks, you know, we're dealing with a number of people that are having a hard time. And all of these folks over here don't even know we exist. They don't even know that they needed an infirmary or a health lodge. They may have, they, they dealt with their own blisters and that's going to be part of their story was how they toughed it out when one of their toenails went black. And it was just, it's really encouraging. Um, when you start to feel that way is like, look for the reason you're doing it and look for all the good, good portions of it. Another story that I had was a young gentleman came down and we weren't sure that we were going to be able to get him out with his crew. And he really wanted to be back out and he'd spent a ton of money and a ton of time training this had been like something he'd been looking forward to. Um, didn't have a lot of really great gear. And that was kind of contributing to some of the, the issues that he was having. So I think it was like four or five in the afternoon, maybe like two or three. And it was, uh, hey, we think we can get you out, but this will be the last time before your crew is like not near a road where we can't get you somewhere. We might not have the resources to make it happen. And so we, uh, I called over, I called Shelly and I was like, hey, is there anything that we can do? Like, can we trail charge this? But I need to get, we got to get this guy some socks and some boots and everything else. And the trading post had just closed. And she's like, yeah, let me get a call over there. So I walk over and I was like, Hey, we want to try and get you outfitted. And then we know we got to get you to dinner. And then like, we have some other stuff to do. We'd like to try and get you out there tonight. They open the doors, they walk them in. And like, this is, this one's hard for me actually, because those guys and gals in there acted like they were opening the store for the first time in the morning. And they're like, Hey, what's your name? Come on in. And he's some, I don't know, 14, 15 year old kid who probably didn't have his, you know, even his parents' credit card with him. And they're like, okay, let's, let's see. So socks and boots and Hey, I bet this would be helpful too. And they walked through and they got him like tried on four different socks, got him two pair of what he needed, tried on three different boots, did stuff. And I don't remember, but I think that Shelly made that, that trail charge just get lost somewhere. Um, so we, like he was the only kid in the store and they treated him just like that. Like you are the only customer in here. You're the most important kid today. And I was like, guys, thanks for helping out. Like we could have done that a little quicker. And they're like, why we're helping him out. That's what we're here for. So we walk over and we drive him out and get him on the trail. And I was like, that was really rewarding. That makes me feel super proud to know that I'm working with folks like that. And that like, yeah, you could just say, "Oh, I'm, I, I worked. I worked in a gear shop over the winter," and that's that's not what these folks were doing. And then, probably like three days later, my cell phone rings, and it's Chris Sawyer's number. And I answer, and I was like, "Hey, what's going on, man?" And he goes, "Hey, I have somebody who wants to talk to you." And he hands me the phone, and it's this kid. And like, I'm standing next to Nate, trying not to cry. And this, uh, I yeah, and this. Uh, uh, this kid said, Hey, I wanted to say thank you because I was able to finish with my crew and that was really important. And you guys really just uh, did some extra stuff. No one else told me that that would happen. And uh, so 
thanks. And I was like, I'm really glad that you got to finish. And I hope you guys have a safe trip home. Um, and Chris was like, yeah, I was just chatting with him. And he said he was down at the health lodge and that uh, he kind of told me a little bit of his story. And he just said he wanted to say thanks. And I said, I know who I can call. And so after that, that was part of our morning brief for a while. And um, so I don't want to use a kid's name, um, but uh, uh, the, like using his name basically meant like, here's the reason we're doing it. Like when things sucks, it suck. It was like, we're, we're going to pretend that this guy's name is Dave, but we're like for Dave. And because several of us worked with, with, you know, like we're helping hit that, that kid that afternoon, it's those little things. And it, they turn into like a rallying cry. If you share that story and you help, help bring that out. Uh, like if you ever hear, Shelly O'Neill tell the, the butterfly story and why there will always be t-shirts with butterflies on them in the, in the, in the trading post. Um, it's along those lines. Yeah. Uh, so that, that's, yeah, that was, that was one that was a really big, like, right. Yeah. That was yeah. important to me. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that one. Yeah. So many good people out there at Philmont, some of the best yeah. people I know, some of the best participants and just, it's a, it's a magnet for, for incredible work, incredible people. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty high standard. Everybody that I work with hates it when I go. Well, at Philmont, <laughs> <laughs> right? When I was at Philmont, the way that we did it at Philmont set the bar at Philmont uh, unbelievably high. Yeah. Okay. With that, is there anyone you want to nominate to be on the show? Okay, so I know that there's probably some that uh, are. You're, there's probably like I don't think you're allowed to comment while serving in office, and there's probably some <laughs> that. Uh, uh, I don't know if there's a statute of limitations before they're allowed to sign their non-disclosure agreement goes up. Of course, I'm talking about one of my best friends, Nate Lay, quite a bit. I will do this publicly to embarrass both of us, but he is also someone who is one of my mentors. Uh, I think that's part of it is that he holds an incredibly high standard and is a, a great, great man in general. And I think that's part of the reason that that I like him and that I can learn so much from him and I have and hopefully... Uh, I can find some way to repay him for all of his professional and, and personal contributions to me. I think that Mark Anderson would be a great contributor as well. I don't know if you're planning on having a just an entirely different version, <laughs> uh, just a, a, a whole nother streaming service dedicated to that. Yeah, pretty much. Um, <laughs> you know, I think that um, Steve Nelson is actually uh, a good resource as well. He's got a really interesting story and he's a, he's a really cool guy. Joey Fernandez from the dining hall. Yes. Yeah. Um, and if you can get Molly as well. Yeah. Uh, you know that she's, she's kind of retired. I haven't gone through the whole list. I don't know if you've chatted with Dave Kennecke yet. No, he I haven't. Start, he started out as a uh, participant from Ohio and is now running the cattle department. <laughs> I don't know. There's, there's such a long list and I feel bad because uh, a lot of the folks that I know have either sort of, they're sort of not necessarily involved with program as much. They've more been on the, admin side just at the level that I was at before I left. But uh, I have actually really enjoyed all the work that you've been doing because there's a lot of stories from folks that I sort of tangentially knew and getting to hear their experiences and similarities and differences and things where I was like, oh, I didn't know that. Or, ooh, I wasn't in that department when like that was way different when I was uh, <laughs> when I was working there or when I was working close to that department. Yeah, that's kind of my favorite part is always like uh, interviewing people that I, I knew briefly or more of the, like the legend people and mm -hmm. then getting all the details. So you're one of those. So it'll be fun. To hear. <laughs> it'll be fun to drop it's, this one for a lot of it'll folks. Be super, super weird. Um, <laughs> no, I know I'm some just... people are like, I, I, I can't listen to it. Like I'm not going to listen to my interview and I'm like, that's fine. <laughs> you don't have to, <laughs> but well, and the one that, uh, and it's, I will, the other one, and, uh, uh, you can use this if you want, but, uh, 
part of the reason that I, uh, one, have trouble getting through more than two uh, of the podcasts, and that's why I'm so far behind, more than two episodes in a row. And when you were asking me some questions to prepare, uh, I had to like think about it and take a break. And then I was like, okay, I can't do this right now. I got I to come back to it because uh, some of it was incredibly, uh, it made me incredibly homesick and uh, incredibly heartbroken that I'm not there still doing it. And that I will continue to fight and go back any chance that I can for any excuse that I can. Um, and so, yeah, I hope that uh, everybody is hopefully taking away some or partial of that feeling and that they can carry that with them. But uh, I was like, yeah, this, if I listen to three in a row, I'm pretty sure it's going to be while I'm packing um, and trying to <laughs> dig out, dig out a polo somewhere to, to head back down there. I can relate to that. <laughs> yeah. Even though I get to talk to people like film on people every week, it's like, it just makes me want to be out there even more. So I get it. Yeah. Do you want to answer the 11th essential question? Oh, if I had, which one would I take? I forget exactly if, how that's. Uh, okay. So if you, so there's the 10 essentials, but if you yep. had to take an 11th essential, what would it be? Like something like an actual tool or thing or like a mentality? What would you say you carry with you? Yeah. I, I mean, uh, I, the one that uh, I could say is my, uh, uh, my now fiance, but uh, <laughs> she said yes. So as far un, until I think like that's all tied up paperwork wise, she still has the option to, to out on that one. Um, but so far that that seems to be locked up. The one memento, I, I, I'm really not into like physical things. I like to think that sometimes you can get a get a like the more you know or the more skills you have, the less stuff you have to have, or you can be flexible with the things you have. Sometimes that's a personal challenge of mine that gets me in trouble. Ooh, I should have brought that. Um, I was thinking about if there was a memento that I didn't need or that I, that I actually needed. Um, I, I still have, and I, I realized I will be sad when it's gone is I have my film on staff. I forget what we call them. Like the cool tech shirts. There was yes. a, a couple years where it was the, the semi absorbable, breathable, semi smelly. It was like the work shirt yeah. uh, that a lot of us were given for cons days or base camp work career days. I, I like the idea, but I, I can see why they were a pain to manage. So I still have one and I use that whenever I go out for like a ski tour, like a big ski race or a running race or anything like that. And it is amazing how many people will see it and go, oh, did you work at Filmlot? And I'll be in the middle of nowhere feeling miserable, like trying to eat or drink something at an aid station. It's like, yeah, yeah, I did. Um, <laughs> it was great. And they want to talk to me while I'm like, it's a race. I got to keep moving. Um, and I realized when that shirt dies, I'm actually going to be sad. Um, yeah. and I'll be, I will go get another piece of clothing and I will be okay. But if, if there's like a mentality, it would just be like, pay attention and try it. Like just pay attention to what's going on around you. Cause if you can notice the little things, you might be able to like pick up on the thing that could be cool um, that you want to go do and that you might find the next like surprising, engaging thing. And, and then try it. The, the worst thing is you tried and, and you failed and it didn't work, but um, rarely do you, do you actually lose anything when you actually make an attempt at something cool. That's how, when I think about like, how did I wind up in this silly situation? Um, it's all been because I was like, I oh, don't know, I'll give it a shot. And uh, well, why not? Why, why not? Why not one more year? Like, why don't I try this version of it? And, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of hard, difficult parts, but uh, like anybody's life, but it's, it'll, it'll work out. Things are, things are actually pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. I dig it. So yeah, Toph, thank you for being on the show, for taking time this evening to chat with me, for taking time to mentally prepare and uh, share your stories with listeners. 
No, I really appreciate all the work that you're doing. I hope that you actually have quite a few followers that are currently working at the ranch or even looking at working at the ranch and not just all of us that are really reminiscing about the glory days and telling stories about our friends. Um, yeah. Thank you for all of your work. It's you're, you're cranking out an, an incredible amount and quality of content. Thank um, you. I mean, you guys make my job pretty easy. You do all the talking, but yeah, it's, you're asking people to talk a little bit about themselves and everybody loves doing that. <laughs> yep. It's true. It's a human condition. <laughs> yeah. So I was going to give one plug for one other thing. I think yeah. Everybody should take a look and see if they can try and subscribe to the Colfax Gazette, which is uh, Roger Smith and his sister's newspaper for Cimarron. Uh, that will certainly help keep you apprised of all the local happenings. And uh, it is actually a really, really great publication that is just done with care and love for that awesome town that holds that giant place up. Do you want to talk about how you first met Nate? You mentioned that a while back. Ooh. Or is that not a podcast appropriate? No. no it's, um, so I want to say I was a, I don't know if I was an activities or if I was a ranger, but I remembered, I think we came down out of the Valle and we stopped at Rich Cabins. And I remember like hanging out with the staff because we got there in the, you know, kind of twilight and we were hanging out on the porch. And then I think we were just like meadow crashing right out front. And I wake up in the morning and there's this guy who's an interns, but he's, he's not wearing shoes, shirts untucked, half awake, like hairs everywhere, beard's a big mess. And he's kind of shuffling around and he's sort of making noises. Like, uh, uh. And like, if I hadn't been looking, I might've thought that there was a bear wandering around their, their yard. <laughs> I was just like, who is this guy? Like this guy has just gone native and he turns around. He's like, mm, and leans over and picks up this pig um, by, you know, like two legs in the front. And then with the other hand, he grabs the back two legs and picks them up and shuffles over to the other side of the yard and then just pitches it into a hole. And I was like, uh, okay. Uh, and so I look at my buddy and I was like, yeah, you guys, you, well, let me know when you're ready to go. So we pack up and take off. And so it's years later and he was talking about, oh yeah, well, I'd work here. I'd worked here. And I was at Rich Cabins as, as a camp director there. And I was like, wait a minute, what year was that? And I was like, I think this. And he goes, oh yeah, one of our pigs died. And so we had to, we had to go dig deep hole and bury it. So the animals wouldn't get it. Huh? Oh, you were there that morning. And like, he just looked super rough and tired and beat up. <laughs> and was just like shuffling around the yard and had to go bury this dead pig. And I was like, uh, that was that was the first time that I saw him, and then uh, I think I may have walked by him when he was the camp director at Black Mountain during the fire relocation year two thousand two. But yeah, that was another one where like 
if you're there long enough, you've walked by your best one of your new best friends like yeah. five times before yeah. you actually run into them. Oh, hey, wait, wait, how long have you worked here? Oh, okay, we know each other. <laughs> I love that about like um, Philmont friendships. It's hard to really pinpoint like when the friendship started half the time because mm-hmm. you're just like always there. Just, we've just been here together. Yeah, uh, but that's funny. Nate Lay, he's a man of legend. 